You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. This is Cork Today. Cork Today. With Patricia Messenger on C103. And a very good Thursday morning as we welcome you along to the programme. Bernie is taking the calls at 0818 103 103. Text WhatsApps uh, 0862 103 103. And we now have less than an hour uh, for the start of the Ireland's Women's World Cup dream to get under uh, way. Uh, with, I was watching and reading with great interest in sort of the 24 hours leading up to this moment, what the players were saying, how they were feeling, how Europe how is feeling but the, the their captain Katie McCabe for me summed it up when she is hoping that for the girls this could be their Italia 90 and we'll all remember well, those of us of that vintage will remember Italia 90 what it did for the country how we all felt about the Irish lads on the soccer team wouldn't it be great if we could do something similar again and that we'd all be feeling the same way for the girls and for the girls to do as well as the boys did in Italia 90 now several family members of the players are expressing their emotions of the significance Significance for them of having a family member appear in world in a World uh, Cup. Amongst them is Sean Barrett. Now Sean is the dad of the Irish forward Amber Barrett, and of course. Amber Barrett is a name we'll all remember because she scored the winner against Scotland and that was the match that sent Ireland uh, through to the World Cup finals in Australia. He says it's massively exciting. He said, I suppose for everybody involved, but he said it's also for the entire uh, country. And ahead of the game, uh, the captain, Katie McCabe, wrote that we want to give people moments and memories that they will never forget. She then went on to reflect on how far the game has come in Ireland and she was writing in the Players uh, uh, Tribune earlier on this week she said, to really get us, you have to know about the days when we didn't have any money. We didn't have, nobody showed us respect. No, nothing. When we didn't get paid. When we were training on pitches that looked like potato fields. When we had to borrow tracksuits and then had to change in the airport toilets to hand those tracksuits back. She added, people in Ireland always talk about the men's first World Cup in Italy in 1990. We want this to be our Italia at 90. But she is, she is right to reflect on how far in such a short period of time ladies soccer has come in this country. And I, I was surprised to, to read that it was only in, 19, only in 1973 that the Ladies Football Association was actually formed in this uh, country. So they started off and actually their first international game was a friendly against Wales uh, that they actually won. And then they had their first competitive uh, debut match, but they had to wait until 19. in 1982, nearly 10 years later, to play a competitive debut match. And that was in the European qualifier uh, against Scotland that they unfortunately lost. But like for them starting in 73, it took another 10 years to get them 
onto an international uh, uh, stage. And then it was nearly another 10 years after that, 1991, that the Ladies Football Association finally became affiliated with the FAI. Jump forward another 10 years to 2001. That's when it became known as the Women's Football Association of Ireland, where it still is uh, today. Now, the year 2000 saw them win the Celt Cup. And that's a four-team uh, tournament that features Northern Ireland, Scotland and the Isle of Man. And they won that in the year uh, 2000. And then, you know, they, they had reasonable success. They, they won some uh, nice matches that were deemed to be, you know, quite tough and up against quite elite uh, teams. They certainly enjoyed success at under 17, at under uh, 19 and in 2010. A team that, by the way, includes some of the current World Cup stars. They were actually runners-up in the women's under-17 championships and they were quarter-finals in the women's under-17 World uh, Cup. Four years later then, brings us up to 2014, uh, where Katie McCabe was uh, part of the Irish team that reached the UEFA Under-19 Championship semi-final. So they've kind of been knocking on the door at a lot of these international competitions for a long time. And despite the successes they, they were having and the significant strides that were being made by this team on an international stage, it was back in 2017 that I think the Irish squad got a lot of media attention because that was at the time that they resorted to, they, they threatened that they do a boycott. There was an international match coming up against Slovakia and they said that they wouldn't play. And what they wanted to highlight was the substandard treatment by the FAI. And that was where that story came out. I think that shocked the nation when the girls started to say, we get a loan of a tracksuit to play a match. And as soon as we get back into Dublin airport, because, you know, they travel in the tracksuits, they have to take them off and hand them back. And then they're passed on to another team. And I remember at the time they were saying, could you ever see the boys having to do that? And of course, no was the answer. So agreement was reached with the association at that stage and then a professional approach to all aspects of player management and to the welfare of this team that finally culminated in what we're seeing today, the international success of the national team and what we will see in under an hour, the participation for the first time of an Irish team in the World Cup finals under the guidance, of course, of one uh, Vera uh, Pau. And it is there's so much excitement about this match and it's lovely to see in the papers that a lot of areas have got the bunting out which is terrific particularly areas where the players uh, hail from and it is in it's a big big event of course in Australia because it's their biggest sporting event since they staged the Olympics and that was back in the year uh, 2000 so for both the nations it's Ireland's first World Cup huge event for the Australians you're going to have both nations very much holding their breath today but for me I think win lose or draw I do think these girls are legends are legends just for getting uh, to the finals and we wish them nothing but luck uh, 0818103103 and Michael already in on WhatsApp saying Patricia every good luck to our ladies team this morning and indeed every morning for their World Cup matches Ireland is so proud of their achievement to date this is history being made this morning. Uh, Michael, though, says personally he feels disappointed that they're not receiving as much coverage on national TV stations as they would 
if this was the men's team, we'd be having wall-to-wall coverage with bunting out uh, everywhere. Uh, yeah, what I think the girls have had to fight every step of the way to be where they are uh, today. And uh, and it would be fantastic if they progressed through some of the stages and this was their Italia 90. Thank you for your text, Michael, to 0862. 103, 103. And someone picking me up on the fact that I have been referring to the ladies on the soccer team as girls. Somebody says there are no girls in Women's World Cup. They are women. Wow, as my mother would say, there's not so queer as folk. Uh, 0818 103 103. We were talking yesterday about the cobblers. Um, a, this is Mike, originally from Tupot House, just outside of Mallow, now living in Bantry. says, Patricia, just going back to the piece that you did yesterday about cobblers. And uh, people were talking about Dasher Daly, who was a great cobbler in uh, Mallow. Uh, his actual name was Mick. He was Mick Daly. He was a gentleman. And he was actually originally from Castle Island in County Kerry. And that's from uh, Mike listening to us in Bantry. Thanks for that, Mike. 0818 103 103. Court today on C103. A new drug has been hailed as a turning point in the fight against Alzheimer's after it was found to slow the progression of the disease. To talk about the significance of this breakthrough, I'm joined by Kira O'Reilly. And Kira is the research project officer with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Good morning, Shakira. Good morning, Patricia. And, uh, and very well. And uh, thanks a million for taking time out to talk to us. I suppose, can you explain how this drug, Donanimab, if I'm pronouncing it right, how it actually works? Absolutely. I think it might be helpful to start with just explaining the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's because I know that that's something that we get asked quite a bit. Okay. So just to clarify for people, that dementia is the name for a range of conditions that can t- cause damage to the brain. This damage can affect memory, language, behaviour and kind of your ability to think and plan. And there are many conditions which cause dementia and Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause. So Alzheimer's disease is a neurodegenerative disease. So it affects your memory, it affects your ability to carry out your everyday tasks like managing your money or driving. Um, And when we say neurodegenerative, we mean that it's in the brain and it gets worse over time. So people with Alzheimer's disease have this buildup of a sticky, toxic protein in the brain called amyloid. And denanomab, the new drug, yes, you're pronouncing it correctly, <laughs> uh, works with the body's immune system to target amyloid and to try and break it down. So it targets the underlying biology of Alzheimer's disease. And I'm assuming it has taken scientists and researchers years to get to this stage. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a very exciting week. Uh, this has taken 20 years in the making, but two weeks ago there was an announcement of another drug which treats uh, amyloid, which targets this amyloid as well. So it's a very exciting time, but it's by no means a cure. It is uh, clinically very significant and the drug is effective. But Tananamab is going to be for a very specific group of people who are at the, at the early stages of having memory problems. So people who may have been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment or early stage Alzheimer's disease. So it's really important to remember that Tananamab and indeed Nicanamab, which is that other drug, other drug they're going to be helpful for a small number of people. So it's really important that we continue to advocate for and resource other interventions and supports for people who are living with dementia. And how is it is it given? Is it infusion? Is it tablets? It, infusion, yes. Yeah. So it goes uh, intravenously uh, so to a drift straight into the bloodstream on a monthly basis. Okay. And, and side effects? Because people always worry when a new drug comes out that there will be side effects. Of course, yeah. And with, you know, a lot of drugs that obviously has, or with every drug really, it has side effects. So 
Um, there are obviously side effects that come along with having infusions, but specifically with Zenanimab, there were records, records of this amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, so areas, and there are microbleeds in the brain or temporary swelling. So, I mean, I'm not playing it down. Some of those resolve by themselves, but in 24% um, of the people who took the Zenanimab, they experienced that brain, brain bleed. All right, so, uh, but with any drug, there will always be, unfortunately, Kira, um, uh, side effects. So where, where are we at with this drug and when would you expect it to be available, say, here in this country? Absolutely. So Eli Lilly are the pharmaceutical company behind it and they're based in the States. So they have filed for FDA approval this quarter. And so here in Ireland, we're under the European Medicines Agency. So we expect Eli Lilly to seek approval from them by the end of the year. So unfortunately, we don't know how long the approval process takes, but you know we don't have any control over it. But um, we are optimistic that you know we'll hear early next year or you know into the, the middle of next year. Yeah, and of course, Eli Lilly are here in Cork and they're in Limerick. It's possible some of these drugs could be made here in this country. Oh, that's not something I could say later on, but very possibly. <laughs> but it is. It would be. It, it would be great. But and is is this drug and the other drug that that you mentioned, uh, Kira? Is this the first real sign of hope for maybe one day a cure or, or prevention of Alzheimer's? Uh, I think so. I think there's cause to be very hopeful. Um, but there are so many trials that are happening worldwide and so many interventions that are happening here in Ireland as well. The dementia space is, um, the dementia research space is very busy. There's so many researchers are working so hard to look at dementia from all perspectives and work not just for cure, but for interventions that can support people living with the condition today, tomorrow, and people will be diagnosed, you know, early next year. Um, so in order to make their lives easier and better, you know, so many researchers looking at dementia, it's a fantastic space to be in. And of course, with an ageing population, uh, not just in this country, all over the world, I mean, it's great that people are living longer, but that does mean we will see more people, doesn't it, diagnosed with Alzheimer's? Yes, absolutely. Um, and we would advocate for people to, if they have concerns about their memory, to contact their GP um, and who may then be referred on to a memory clinic. And the Alzheimer's Society here in Ireland, and obviously there are other Alzheimer's societies around the world, but here we work in the heart of local communities to support those people who are going to be diagnosed down the line, who've been diagnosed already, who are living with Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, we provide services such as home care and day centres, daycare at home. We provide training for family carers and community engagement projects. So um, we would recommend that people link in with their local services. Yeah, and we have, we have thanks to your, your, your good selves at the Alzheimer's Society, we have amazing uh, services here in uh, Cork with uh, day, uh, day centres and, and people uh, working out in the community. So, 100%. Uh, yeah, people recognise the, the valuable work that, that you do, uh, Kira. And just one other thing on this uh, drug, because I noticed, you know, for, for it to, to work best, it should be given to people in the early stages of Alzheimer's. So is getting that early diagnosis now with a drug like this and when it is available on the market, that's going to become all the more important, isn't it? Yes, but we've always advocated for people to pursue a diagnosis to be proactive about their health care. So this drug is specifically for those people with the early diagnosis, the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, um, mild cognitive impairment. That's who this one is, is targeted towards. But, you know, it's, there are other reasons to go and get that diagnosis. You know, it allows you to future plan and be involved and make decisions about how you want your care to, to what you want your care to look like down the line. But is it one of those things people try and bury their heads in the sand and don't want to don't want to face up to when they when I they think, see they they have they, they might be have symptoms? I think the experience. 
experience of dementia is so individualistic that, you know, everybody's going to have a different response to it. And some people will always have been a she's the bull by the horns kind of person. And, you know, as soon as they notice a change, they might be straight down to the GP. And yes, you're right, some people will be more inclined to, to put it off and say, oh, no, it's fine, you know. It's, and there are lots of reasons that people have memory problems. So just because you're suddenly wandering into the kitchen and forgetting why you are why you walked in there, that doesn't, it doesn't mean that you've got Alzheimer's disease or yeah. dementia. There are lots of things that affect your memory. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, listen, uh, Kira, pleasure to talk to you. As you say, what is a very exciting time for everybody working in, in the world, particularly working in the world of research when it comes to Alzheimer's. Uh, continued uh, good luck with that work into the future, Kira. And thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Many thanks for your time. Patricia. Good morning to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. That is Kira O'Reilly, who is a research project officer <clears throat> with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland on what is looking like a great, great breakthrough for Alzheimer uh, sufferers. And Alzheimer's is one of those things, as I mentioned, with an ageing population. Uh, we never know when it can land on our own uh, doorsteps so we welcome any kind of research like that and any breakthrough uh, drugs 0818103103 can I just pick up on something else that I spotted in the paper this morning because when we've been talking about RTE and all the comings and goings of RTE and no I'm not getting back into that issue again it's the issue of the the television licence and the numbers of people not paying their television licence and people were saying what would happen if you didn't pay your television licence and some people there was one lady in particular whose television licence is uh, due in the the coming weeks and she said she'd love to be brave enough to not pay it because she's so disgusted with everything that she's heard but she was making the point that she be fearful that the guards will come to her door uh, and uh, arrest her. And we do know that people do end up in court for non-payment of their TV licence. Well, I just saw yesterday that the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, she's insisted that the public must obey the law by paying their TV uh, licence, despite all the ongoing controversy that's coming, coming, coming out. She has come out very strongly and says this is the law of the land. And if you don't pay it, there will be uh, repercussions. And of course, we all remember the media minister, Catherine Martin. She came under huge criticisms earlier this month when she was asked, you know, would she be advocating for people to pay their TV licence? And she said she was unable to say whether she could tell people or not to pay it. Now, in fairness, she did roll back on that and did and did what it was, well, I think it was pointed out to her by probably other cabinet members and by people in her own department saying you can't be saying that, you have to tell people to, to pay it. So she did come back out and clarify it. But her initial reaction was saying, I'm not going to tell people whether they're going to pay it or not. We know, because I mentioned it, yesterday there has been a huge drop in the number of people renewing their licence just for the first two weeks of this uh, month but Helen McEntee yesterday when she was asked about the non-payment of TV licence she categorically said it is the law she said I would also like to remind people of what it is they're paying for you're not paying for one person's individual salary you're not paying for a small number of people's salary she says it's a fantastic team of people who work across TV radio print and many other areas and that's what you're paying your money for she said the work that they do everything from current affairs to sports to culture to entertainment to religion 
that is the service that they uh, provide. So she's very much pointing out, though, that it is the law of the uh, land. And of course, Catherine Martin is the media minister. It really falls onto her brief if people don't pay and if this fall off in licence renewal continues because it's back to the media minister that RTE will go uh, cap in hand. She's still uh, saying that it's too early yet and she doesn't know if people are just holding back and if it's an initial just quick reaction to the controversy. So she's going to bide her time and wait and see uh, do people decide to pay their licence or not. 0818103103 Bernie's taking your calls. You can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. The South Dock Out of Hours GP service in Cork and Kerry has insisted they have no plans to change the nighttime service despite local concerns as doctors' rosters are reallocated around the region. Cork East Labour Doll Deputy Sean Sherlock still has concerns and says some questions still remain. And Sean joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Sean. Good morning, Patricia. Now, Sean, it's it's the red eye GP cover for Fomoy and Mitchellstown that really has caused the most uh, concern, and the same could be set up in in Kanturk as well. What did South Dock have to say about these the, the red eye cover, which is from ten o'clock at night until eight in the morning when the when the the Mallow and Mitchellstown services closes, isn't it? That's right. So, in, in essence, uh, Patricia, the background to this for for your listeners, is that there is one physical centre that is in Formoy. It is a building, uh, and that serves as a, a South Dock centre, uh, which covers what we call the Formoy Mitchellstown cell. So each GP is part of a cell, and the cells then are spread out geographically. So you have the Mallow cell, the Mitchellstown Formoy cell, and so on. And so what South Dock has decided now is that it is going to close the actual physical centre that is Formoy that serves, and you can imagine the geographical area, Mitchellstown, Formoy, Ballino, Connor, Rathcormac, Ballyhooley, Kildoric, you know, all of those areas. And what it means is that there is no, once you go through the, when you ring on an out of, sorry, when you ring on a red-eye basis, so if you're a sick person and you need access to a GP in that area, in the wee early hours of the morn, and ordinarily you would have been seen at that centre in Formoy, that is no longer the case. So in essence, what they're saying is that, right, yes, we are closing that physical centre, but we're not, to use their language and the HSE's language, we're not reducing, and this is the euphemistic language that they use, the quantum of servers. So in other words, they're arguing that the service is still retained, uh, they're arguing that even though they're taking out the Fermoy Centre, if you need access to a GP on a red-eye basis, that they've set up a structure now to ensure that you will still be seen if you need to be seen. Now, I can't reconcile that in my own mind uh, because what that means to me is one of two things. You either get your phone consultation at Fermoy and they hope to sort you out Sorry, you get your phone consultation if you're from the Formoy Mitchestown area and they hope to start you out over the phone. Or B, you have to go to uh, Blackpool or Mallow or Middleton to be seen. Or, or C, they'll send a car your way. Now, I, I am not convinced that, uh, you know, there are 19 vehicles 
if you take out one physical centre, that means that the 19 vehicles which are supposed to be roaming the entirety of the Cork Kerry region, uh, I can't see how somebody who gets sick in Mitchestown or from I, and when I say Mitchestown or from I, no, I'm, I'm talking about and the surrounding All area. All the hinterlands, yeah. And, and, and the it's, it's, it's a big, big area. It's a massive area. So if you take out a physical centre, the knock-on effect of that is that centres like Mallow, I, I believe, and Middleton uh, and Blackpool will just not be able to cope with the throughput coming from that geographical area. Because they and suddenly get busier with the people coming from that Formoy cell have to, go, have to go, or the car will have to go out to somebody. And that could, leave, that could leave uh, no, no car and no doctor available in Mallow for somebody in the Mallow area who needs to see somebody in Southstock. And that is, that's it in a nutshell. So in essence, if a car is in, we'll say, Ballyno, and it's t- two o'clock in the morning and they're treating somebody in Ballyno, and a call comes in from, say, for instance, west of Mallow to Lombardstown or Glantan or someplace like that, and there is only one car available. I mean, the length of time that it's going to take to get from Ballino, uh, you know, to, to Lumberstown, for instance, I'm just plucking these examples. I know, I know. Air. You know, it's just not tenable. It doesn't stack up. Now, the, the biggest issue that I have is around the decision-making process because the, the, the SOTOC statement where they say they're not reducing, quote-unquote, the quantum of service does not stack up. It's contradictory. Uh, and while they talk about saying that they're not reducing services in North Cork, the reality of it is, is that they are reducing services in the Formoy mitchestown area or part of North Cork. And I believe strongly that uh, the manner in which SOTOC operates, uh, you know, which is, we're told it's a company, we're told it's a co-op, there does not seem to be an obligation on them to communicate effectively to people like me who are public representatives and, and more importantly to the citizens about their decision-making processes. There has not been anybody who has come forward from South Dock to give an account in a public way and a transparent way around the justification for the decision. Yeah, they, just, they issue a very lengthy, chunky press statement. But, I mean, that's, that's all. And as you say, when you read between the lines, you're thinking, hang on a tick, there, is, there isn't going to be a, a red eye operating out of Formoy. There isn't going to be anybody there. So, it, so, so, so you're right in what you're saying. And I think also while people are saying, oh, this is only something that's affecting Formoy and Mitchellstown, it's not. It's going to have a wider implication on the other South Dock cells. It, it affects everybody throughout Cork county of Cork, Patricia. That's the knock-on effect of all of this. And the reason for that is precisely as you've outlined, because if you don't increase the numbers of GPs operating in cells like Mallow, if you don't increase the number of GPs and staff uh, operating in cells like Middleton, for instance, then they're going to be dealing with a greater throughput. Mm. You phone South Dock at one o'clock in the morning with a sick child who has a temperature of 39 or 40 degrees. And you're, you know, and you're, you're panicking. You just want, to, you're you panicking. want your child to see a doctor. You need that consultation. 
if if it's an older person, an elderly person who has maybe you know a multitude of sicknesses, all of a sudden, sudden there's a, an infection presentation. You know that person has to be seen. That can't be dealt with over by phone. And all of a sudden, your waiting time for a callback could go from six or seven hours, which is not unusual uh, in, during the winter months, from six or seven hours to maybe eight or nine you know, or, or 10 hours within the, the, the shift. Mm. And so we don't, and then you're forcing people then into an accident, an emergency or an ambulatory call type scenario. Which is so, already, which is already choked. Which is already But just, just in the, just tr- tr- trying to see it from South Stock's uh, point of uh, view and you wonder does the whole South Stock service need to be looked at. They say by their own admission that there has been a 40% increase in appointments since 2006 and they say oh. why a 40% increase in appointments there's been no increase in GP numbers. I mean, are we back to the issue of lack of GPs for our population base? Well, well, well let's, let's interrogate that. But we haven't even had an opportunity to interrogate how South Dock operates. It, like, there is a lot of sympathy for the pressure that GPs are under. And there's a great appreciation of the service uh, that GPs offer to us, the, 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 the population. And if you look at the metrics, like to be fair, they're quite impressive. They've dealt with over 230,000 or, or they've had 230,000 patient contacts uh, in 2022. Uh, you know, they're op- uh, operating in a population of approximately, you know, 700,000 people. So if you have a lesser number of GPs, then obviously there are going to be pressures. But let's see how we can help those GPs uh, offer the services and continue the services in places like Formoy. But you can't do that if there isn't the opportunity to sit down with South Dock in a very public and transparent way. And even though they operate what the, a company or a co-op, the fact remains that they've received 7.5 million in 2021. 7.5 million of taxpayers' uh, money. Uh, they're treating GMS patients, which are funded by the taxpayer, uh, medical card patients. So in other words, the idea that the taxpayer has no skin in the game on how South Dock operates, you know, let's, we'll have to knock that one on its head fairly rapidly. And I believe that South Dock, from a corporate point of view, from a governance point of view, what I'm going to start doing now is looking at their finances. I've already put in a, a number of par- very detailed parliamentary questions because I want to understand what the service level agreement, and that is the agreement between the HSE and South Dock, that determines how South Dock operates as an entity. Because I think we need to start lifting the lid on how South Dock operates as an entity. I think we need greater transparency. I'm not saying that there's a lack of transparency or that anything untoward is going on, but we need to understand why decisions of this nature are made, particularly when the taxpayer is such a big investor yeah. in South Dock yeah, services. And, and I can and see, I see like a lot of people are really worried about this. And as I say, while, while you're uh, talking in particular about uh, from my Mitchellstown area, I know there's been an issue with the, uh, can, the same issues going on in Canturk as well. And somebody from the Canturk area is making the point, what if you've got somebody who doesn't have transport? Uh, are you expecting them then to try to drive to the, the nearest 
South Dock cell not everybody has transport uh, available to them and this whole thing of and I can hear the frustration in your voice of trying to sit down and talk with them and I saw the mayor of uh, Cork County uh, Franco Flynn saying something similar I think he was at a vigil that was held uh, at 10 o'clock on Monday night outside the Fomoy South Dock like he was saying people need they need to sit down and talk with and I'm assuming you've endeavoured to try to have a meeting with the management Truthfully, no, because I, all of my communications now have been directly with the HSE because I've, I've adopted a tactic here of saying that if we're taking 7.5 million of taxpayers' money and if the HSE is supposed to be overseeing the governance of the relationship between South Dock and the people that it serves, then I think that the HSE has a lot of questions to answer. But I'm certainly very willing to sit down with um, Dr. Stack, the clinical director, and others there. Uh, but my tactic on this one will be to see how we can get uh, South Dock in front of uh, the health committee of the Houses of the Oroctus as soon as possible. And I'll be talking to my colleague Alan Kelly on the PAC because I think we need an understanding of how uh, entities like South Dock operate. I think we need to go after the, we need to look at the finances. We need to look at whether or not the taxpayers' interests are being best served uh, in terms of how South Dock operates. We need to interrogate further the service level agreement because it would appear to me that there is a, a serious flaw in the service level agreement between South Dock and the HSE that allows uh, South Dock to make the decision that it made in relation to uh, uh, Formoy. And the other point as well, in relation to their corporate governance or their uh, internal governance is not every GP serving in the Formoy Mitchelton cell was communicated to in relation to these decisions. I know of three GPs at least who were not communicated to around this decision. Now, is, the and idea is this that to do with the new rosters? This is relating to the new rosters okay. and the decision as I understand it, in relation to the closure of the Fromoy Centre. And not only that, you, you also have uh, the issue of uh, how people are going to be affected in terms of their health outcomes. That's the ultimate issue for me. And in terms of the operation of the SLA, which is the point I was trying to make there, I suppose, it, it, it doesn't, we don't have transparency around that relationship. And it seems to me that the HSC, from what I've gleaned so far, seems to allow South Dock to operate in a manner that says, look, there you go, there's your 7.5 million for 2021, which is the last set of figures that I have, and, and you operate it away. I don't know if there's anybody from the HSE who sits on the board. Is there a taxpayer or uh, is there anybody who sits on the board of South Dock who is representing the taxpayer's interest? And the other point as well, uh, and I had kind of forgot myself in the flow there, the industrial relations element of this. And the, the people who are affected by this, who drive the cars, drive the GPs, who act in a secretarial or uh, administrative uh, capacity, uh, nurses and so on. Like, how are they going to be affected by this? And I know for a fact that the terms and conditions of employment of the employees uh, is now going to be adversely affected by reason of this uh, decision in relation to okay. Kamoi. Now, South Dock will argue, well, the flexibility built into those contracts. But if you've been operating 
you know, in the service for 15 or 20 years and doing your very best for the service and giving a great service to the people. And all of a sudden, the manager comes along and says, well, your terms and conditions of employment, we want you now to go and operate in Bantry or Kerry or wherever it is if you want to retain your job. That's just not acceptable. So there's lots of questions. There's lots, here, yeah, lots of questions I, to be answered. I, and, and summed up, I think, by a listener uh, who says uh, the quickest way is to phone an ambulance. You can be dead by the time the doctor will call you back. I'll give you an example. I phoned three weeks ago. The nurse said, you'll get a call back from a doctor in 30 minutes. I was still waiting at 6.40 a.m. the following morning. It's a disgrace. Years ago, you'd ring your GP. He'd come out on a house call at night uh, and you knew you were going to be looked after. So people get frustrated as well and that to me is only going to get worse if they reduce the numbers of cells that are opening during that red eye between 10 and, and 8 you're going to be waiting longer even for a call back from a doctor That's it and the other point here is I don't think GPs are doing themselves any favours by not communicating the challenges that they face uh, in, in terms of the operation of the services I think if GPs and their representatives came out and and communicated about the challenges that they face within their own practices, I think there would be a lot of sympathy and understanding. But if you're not communicating, then it gives rise to issues like this. And like, I think there has to be, you know, and you asked me the question, did I sit down with SOTOC? No, SOTOC hasn't reached out to me, nor have I reached out to SOTOC. I'm very happy to sit down with SOTOC at any time. Okay, and and I know there is a march highlighting the uh, concerns of local people uh, in the Formoy area due to take place in Formoy at 12 o'clock on this Friday morning, uh, tomorrow, uh, starting from the town hall gates and finishing at the courthouse. I have to leave it there. I'm over on time, Sean. Listen, thank you for that. And it's an issue Trisha, I know we'll return to. Yeah. In 10 seconds or less. Yeah. This is not just a for my issue. If yeah. there are people in Mitchelton and Rackcormack, they're affected by this as well. If they're at that march tomorrow, that would be a great thing. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank thanks you, for that. Bye bye. That is uh, Cork East Labour Doll Deputy Sean Sherlock. Bandingardi have just been on to us to say there has been a one vehicle traffic accident entering Bandon from the Inner Shannon side. And because of that, they've had to put a one way traffic system in place. And their advice is if motorists could avoid the area, please, for the next couple of hours, as there's already traffic congestion, people have already got caught up in that. So if you can try to avoid heading to Bandon from the Inner Shannon side, are coming out of Bandon, uh, heading towards Inner Shannon just for the next couple of hours while they sort out that one vehicle traffic accident that occurred uh, earlier. 0818103103. Pandon from Oi was on to the listener who was critical when I started the programme by talking about the Irish ladies' uh, soccer team or the Irish women's soccer team and I referred to them as girls. And uh, I got picked up on that and he, 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 I'm assuming he, maybe she, said I shouldn't be referring to them as girls, they're women. Patton from Oise says, Patricia, there is absolutely no harm in calling women girls. Pat says he does it all the time. <laughs> and, and I, as a woman, would often refer to, I'm heading out with the girls, if I was going to <laughs> with the girls. I don't, I don't really think that there's any uh, issue with that. And I don't think the girls on the soccer team would take offence either. But, um, um, you know... The world is made up of all different people and everybody looks at things differently, I suppose. Jim wants to, while we're on about the ladies, women's, girls, soccer team, wants to wish them all the best of luck, particularly to Cork's Denise O'Sullivan and to Clara Reardon from Newcastle uh, West. It is great to see on the eve of the World Cup yesterday that the GAA has agreed 
to cater for the Ladies Football and Camogie Association, which will see the ladies now getting the very same expenses as their male counterparts. And that should always have been the case. Uh, Jim said he, said he, he uh, heard Aoife Murphy, former Cork Camogie player, uh, saying that she spent he thinks it was something like €20,000 in travel expenses driving from Dublin to Cork for training and games. So he said it's about time that the ladies got equal recognition and the same standards and, and expenses. Yeah, and as I mentioned at the top of the programme when I was talking about the women's soccer team, how hard they had to fight to be put on some kind of equal footing as the men. And yeah, only to write that the GAA ladies should be on the same footing as well. Thank you uh, for that, Jim. Actually, talking about Denise uh, O'Sullivan, uh, we're hoping to speak with Denise O'Sullivan, one of her sisters tomorrow on the programme. Obviously they're watching the match. I think their whole family uh, and extended family and friends are all meeting. They they picked a city centre location. We'll find out more about it uh, tomorrow. But it would be fantastic to be speaking to Denise's sister tomorrow if they have a win today. It really would be uh, great. So we'll we'll, we'll talk about that more uh, tomorrow. On the TV licence and the Minister for Justice pointing out that you are breaking the law if you don't pay your TV licence and she's telling everyone you need to Pay. Someone says TV license and what choice uh, do we have? Particularly when we look at if we don't pay, because guess what? So this text: if you don't pay, you end up paying a fine. So there's no there's no point. Uh, all I feel I'm paying for is repeats. RT should be revamped. Says this texter. Morning, Patricia. The law, laws have been broken by people at the top, and they don't even blink. And then we've a well-paid minister preaching to us about the law. That's from uh, Pat. And Micah says, Patricia, for what it's worth, RT will be very, very lucky if they survive this current debacle. It's a lifelong debacle and it's been left to roll on for many, many years. And now it's trying to be righted, which, according to Michael, is too late in the day. He's got sources outside of uh, Ireland uh, who reckon that there are very influential people in the media who are eyeing up RTE, watch this space. And that's from Michael 0818 103 103. And someone said, I've just discovered if you're out sick from work, you'll get 220 euro a week. That's what you get from the Department of Social Protection, which is, this listener says would be hard enough to live on, bearing in mind you're out sick and you'll have doctor's fees and you could have medicines, uh, etc. But this listener says that has just discovered that you're then taxed on what you claim in sick benefit when you go back to work. So Texas says if you pay, for example, 20% tax, you'll have to pay back €44 Euro a week while you were off sick. It makes you wonder what we're paying our taxes for. I wasn't aware, aware of uh, that. Can anyone confirm that? That whatever money you, you get when you're out sick, you're out sick from work, and of course you pay your PRSI is what you pay so that you do get paid, for, paid when you're out uh, sick. I didn't realise you've got to pay it back um, over the next number of weeks and months when you return to uh, work. That certainly is new information on me. 0818 uh, Jerry says, how is, the, uh, how is the Irish government going to explain how a Russian drone used to bomb Ukraine was found to have parts of the drone made in Ireland? This is very embarrassing and raises questions about Ireland's neutrality, to say the least. Says Jerry, yeah, I saw that footage of that drone and there's a part of it which says uh, made in uh, Ireland. Now, I, I, I saw 
other explanations of con- saying that the Russians are deliberately doing this, they're deliberately making pieces and making it look like that they were made uh, somewhere else. There's also the argument that parts could have been made in Ireland with the, the, with the company not realising that they were going to go on uh, to be used in drones that would end up being used to, to bomb Ukraine. But certainly people are looking into it uh, for sure. 0818 And when, when I mentioned at you know, the top of the programme that I got picked up by uh, a listener who... who said that I shouldn't be referring to the girls on the Women's World Cup that they're women and that's what I should be referring to them uh, as and it kind of gets me thinking you know people complain about all kinds of uh, different things but the weather is something that we all like to complain about in this country and we know that sometimes the weather forecasters i.e. Met Aaron can get it wrong but I would never think of writing to Met Aaron to complain because they got a weather forecast wrong I, you know I think you know, the, the majority of the time Met Aaron do get it right but they don't always get it right particularly when you're trying to hang washing out in the line and you check the weather forecast and it says it's not going to be raining in your area and you put the washing out and you head into town and you head into work and suddenly the heavens open opens and that drives me mad but it would never ever prompt me to put pen to paper or to sit down and type an email to complain to Met Aaron. But it seems that people do complain. And Met Aaron have released some of the details of the complaints they've received just for the first half of this year. And I don't know if they, I've, I don't think I've ever seen this done before. So I don't know if it's something that Met Aaron regularly do, but maybe they're getting annoyed by the complaints they're getting in. So they've decided to go public on some of them. For example, one angry viewer said that they saw nothing in the weather forecast on the TV about biblical rain that had fallen here in Cork uh, earlier in the spring. The message said, it is still dreadful outside. The forecast was full of snow warnings, but nothing of torrential rain. My important appointment is now lost. I at least would have had a choice to change my appointment had we been forewarned about this biblical rain with your expertise and your technology. Surely this event was obvious. Uh, Obviously it's from a Cork viewer. Another wrote about how they actually cancelled a trip because the weather forecast was for freezing temperatures and snow. And they wrote saying, I woke up this morning and it's a beautiful day. Well done, Met Aaron. One person complained about how difficult it was to make plans due to a succession of forecasts that have been proven incorrect. They, They wrote, yet another incorrect forecast in an email. Today was promised to be dry all day in Sutton in County Dublin on the Met Aaron app. After a sunny morning, there has been thundery downpours since lunchtime. Another said a rainfall alert should have been given before torrential rain in County Clare that happened during a match. A warning was definitely required, says the person who complained. Another viewer said they found RTE's forecast unbelievably bad, insisting Met Aaron need to do better. They wrote, it races through the different days, settles on Friday while talking about Tuesday and the picture bears no relation to what the presenter is talking about. Another person complained because there was an incorrect county spelling. Somebody wrote, I've just watched the 9pm news and the weather forecast which followed. They said, I was surprised to see my county listed in the weather warning with an unusual spelling of leash, L-O-A-I-S, instead of leash, L-A-O-I-S, 
just would like to bring this to your notice. And the increasing reliance of people using their phones. And I have a weather app on my phone and I will constantly refer to the weather app on my phone. That's also been highlighted in the people who've complained in the first uh, six months of uh, this year. So people are not, many people now are going to the apps rather than relying on TV and radio for their weather forecast. One person wrote about how the app was telling them that it was five degrees Celsius, when in reality it was below zero. They wrote, it was exactly the same during the last very cold snap. The app stated day after day after day that the temperature would be five or six degrees, when it actually was well below freezing. Another wrote about how the app consistently forecasts clear skies for County Dublin three to four days in advance. These forecasts differ from other providers and from the real weather once it arrives. Understanding that it's a forecast, but it has consistently had this pattern for about two months. Therefore, it is now making it totally unreliable. And one person wondered why the app constantly defaulted to the wrong location. They said, even though I've never been, ever, ever, ever been to Trim in County Meath, the app automatically defaults my location to that location regularly. And there's no way for me to delete it from my list nor to stop it happening. I've tried deleting the app. I tried reinstalling it. All to no avail. And then uh, Ken Fox, who's writing about this in the Irish Independent, decided to contact Met Aaron to ask him about these complaint records. And Met Aaron said they have nothing further to add. C103 Jobs. The Wild Pine Restaurant in Butterfront, they are looking for a part-time relief chef. Now, it'll be to cover holidays, uh, etc., and mainly on Saturdays and Sundays. CVs, please, to emma.quaid2005 at hotmail.com. A stores slash salesperson with the knowledge of mechanics and agri-equipment is wanted for a busy parts department that's in the Mallow area. Now, it may suit a part-time farmer as flexible hours are available. You need to email sales at technic.ie for further details. Fitzgerald Construction in Mallow, they've got vacancies for both skilled and semi-skilled operatives. Full driver's licence and safe pass are essential and the ability to work with general power tools, please. CVs to info at fitzgeraldconstruction.ie And Mallow Print have a vacancy for a junior graphic designer and a part-time reception strike slash admin slash accounts assistant. Please apply with your cover letter and your CV to jobs at mallowprint.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Cork Today on C103. Hairdressers and restaurant owners have both warned that if the reduced 9% VAT rate increases back to 13.5% again as planned at the end of August, it'll put some out of business. Adrian Cummins is Chief Executive of the Restaurant Association and Adrian joins me. Good morning to you, Adrian. Morning. And you're, you're welcome. Now, in February, it was extended. And at the time, it was extended because the government said there was rising uh, costs. Have any of those costs, Adrian, come down since February for your industry? To answer your question, no, none of the costs have come, come down. Um, essentially, our industry, there's a couple of issues going on here at the moment. First of all, you've had, for consumers, seven interest rate hikes 
for mortgages, which means that consumers that are, um, you know, if you go to a restaurant, it's a, it's a disposable spend, it's a leisure spend. You don't have to go if you don't want to. So that's the pressure that we're facing already in terms of demand. The cost of energy hasn't come down. In fact, it's gone up by 300% in the last two years. Inflation is still running at about 5 point something percent, which is the last time that the VAT rate went up, we were under 1% inflation. So there are three components now that's affecting our industry, and the cost of inputs and raw materials has, has increased substantially as well over the last number of years. And I'm assuming that margins, therefore, are already very tight with restaurant owners. Will they have no choice but to pass it on to consumers? Yeah, they have no, they have no other choice because there is a consumer tax and these businesses, you know, will have to pass it on to consumers. And if they don't pass it on, which is their own choice, their business will have to absorb it. And many businesses we know won't be able to absorb it because they're on effectively margins between 1% and 5% and a 4.5% increase. And that doesn't make any sense at this, uh, this moment in time, we believe. Are you already seeing businesses close? Well, we've seen businesses close already, and you can see uh, the latest um, re- um, research and findings in terms of liquidations show that hospitality has seen the highest number of liquidations increase by 214% wow. in the first quarter, first half of this year. Um, that's that's a, that's a major, major issue now facing our industry. And the other point that needs to be pointed out is that our sector has 440 million euros worth of outstanding tax due over the last number of years through VAT payment. And that's what we call warehouse tax. Um, and the government now are looking for that tax to be repaid with immediate effect with a, an interest rate of 3% put onto it. So it's a perfect storm for our industry uh, at the moment. Yeah, and, you know, a, a little bit like the hairdressers, you know, the, you're, you're both industries that, um, you know, were, for a lot of the time were closed down during COVID and, you know, you're desperately trying to get back on your feet again. Absolutely, and it's coming at the wrong time for us. Uh, we're trying to, you know, maintain the employment in our industry, maintain these businesses, which are 20,000 businesses across the country, we're in every town, village, uh, in in across the state, and it's important that you have a, a fabric of a village in place, or a, of a community, or a town, which a hospitality sector plays its part. Adrian, there's been a lot of talk of hotels when it comes to uh, price uh, gouging, especially in the Dublin uh, area. Are you being tired with that brush that uh, oh, everyone in hospitality is milking the, the customer, so of course you should be paying extra in VAT? Is there a danger of that going on? Yeah, well, we're, we're making our case for food, and we're very clear on that. Uh, the politicians have said uh, there has been an open discussion now by politicians around what well, they would describe as a decoupling of the VAT. We're very clear that the VAT rate of 9% should be across all of hospitality, but at the end of the day, we'll take guidance from the politicians. So what they're saying to us is the decoupling or a separation of that from between accommodation and food is the only way forward. And that's what they're articulating to us. 
And we know, um, obviously, that the doll uh, is in summer recess and uh, they don't come back on, until September and the VAT rate is due to go back up on the 31st of August. So, uh, therefore, I'm assuming this is a done deal, Adrian. Well, effectively, it will go up on the 1st of September, but the whole case will now go to the budget in October. And I think once businesses see it increasing, there's going to be a realisation that this is a very, very serious for our industry. And I can see a mass mobilisation across our industry in terms of, you know, advocating to their politicians why it should remain in place. And we're going to make it sure that it will be fairly allowed campaign in terms of the retention of the 9% for food. Yeah, and how do you respond then when you hear the likes of uh, Michael McGrath, our finance minister, you know, saying this week that the cost of the exchequer from February until the end of August of retaining it at 9% was €300 million. Euro. That's money that they could spend elsewhere. Yeah, which you know, I would also point out that, you know, these businesses that will close down, he's going to lose money in, in the long term if he doesn't keep them open. And... Um, we're saying very clearly that nobody has done a, uh, an exercise to say Ireland should be at 13.5% for the following reasons. The Department of Finance has never done an exercise to say that 13.5% is where we should be. We always believe 9 is a right rate. And that's where the issue is, that we have a difference of opinion in terms of what the rate should be for hospitality. Chris wants to know, how does our VAT rate compare with uh, other European countries? So at 9%, we would be on the average across the board. On 135 it will put us the second highest in Europe. So that is something that we're looking at in terms of, um, you know, advocating and making sure that people understand that this is a consumer tax, but it also may put Ireland in a very uncompetitive uh, space in terms of tourism. And it is, you know, coming to Ireland is costly already. You can imagine now what it will be like post um post-September. Mm. Uh, and Louise in Fomoy, one of our listeners, says with everybody struggling with the cost of, of living, nobody will be able to get their hair done and nobody will be able to go out if businesses have to pass this on. What are the government thinking of? We're constantly hearing they're awash with money. Do they really need this extra money? And, and that's a fairly valid point as well, uh, Adrian. It, it's not that we're in very tight times from the exchequer's point of view. That's, that's true. Like, I... We hear this thing about the, the country is awash with money, etc., etc., and um, that doesn't marry up for the business owner that is on a margin between one and five percent of his business, and he hears that there's so much money coming into the exchequer, and he, he or she has to pay more in tax. Um, that's that that doesn't that doesn't weigh up. Uh, these businesses live in the here and now. They want to make sure that they're sustainable. And I think at some stage we need to draw a line under the sand in terms of the VAT rate and what should be the right right rate for VAT and let's move on. Because I think this is going to keep festering on because every time a business will close after September, the, the finger pointing will go towards, well, it was the VAT rate that drove them over the edge. I mean, that's exactly what's going to happen over the next while. And then it could be too late because when a business closes, it's very hard to get it back up and running again, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and just finally, I, I know the, the Low Pay Commission, they're recommending. Cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. An increase in the minimum wage from uh, next year. That would surely affect parts of your industry as well. Uh, hugely. And, you know, everybody knows that there is a cost-of-living crisis and the single big, biggest issue facing our, for the economy at the moment is um, the shortage of housing. And, you know, shortage of housing means rent goes up. Rent goes up means wage inflation. Wage inflation means the business will have to pay more to retain staff. And it's a perfect storm, as I've said already. Like, you know, and then you have the minimum wage going up. And it's not, there isn't a lot of people on, when you compare the entire population, on the minimum wage. It's what the effect of a percentage increase in the minimum wage does a knock-on effect because there will be an expectation across the entire workforce that that's the, this is the normal um, wage increase that should be happening. Mm. And that's where, you know, that uh, wage inflation will spiral will, will spire on. Um, and we've, we've taken a decision that, you know, minimum wage is the minimum wage. We're not opposing it. But we have to articulate that when you have an increase of a certain percentage, there is a knock-on effect for that. Okay. All right, listen, uh, we leave it there. Uh, Adrian, thank you for that. And thanks for taking time out to talk to us. Thank you. Good morning to you. That is Adrian Commons. And Adrian is the uh, Chief Executive of the Restaurant Association of uh, Ireland with that VAT rate uh, set to go back up. I saw somebody, just saw a text come in there saying, Hi Patricia, when the VAT rate was reduced, I have to say I didn't see any corresponding any corresponding reduction in hotel and restaurant charges. In fact, I saw the direct opposite. That is from a Killarney uh, listener. So I'm assuming, uh, well, you'll, you'll see things go up for sure because the restaurant associations are, are saying that they can't, they won't be able to absorb the extra, what, what will it be, four and a half uh, percent. 0818103103. And just to tell you, we are over a half an hour now into the opening match of Ireland versus Australia in the Women's World Cup and it is still nil at all. Uh, so the girls are holding tough, holding tough. Well done. 0818103103. Bernie taking your call. Cork today on C103. And we're going to Skibbereen, Agartha Station, where I am joined by Agartha Kieran Coughlin. Uh, good morning to Kieran. Morning, Patricia. And you are welcome uh, to the programme. Okay, you want to start with a, a couple of incidents. Uh, the first one happened in Riverstick. That's correct, Patricia. Um, just the first instance are interfering with a car in Riverstick area on the 17th of July 2023 around midday, where the damage was reported to be done to a silver Toyota Vitz. Um, three males were seen leaving the scene. Um, we just were looking for information from the public. If they, gar- if they can contact the Gardaí, you can sail Garda station on 021-477-9250. 021-477-9250. And the second then was in Charleville. Correct. Um, that's a theft from a grey Toyota Aris in the Charleville area between the 22nd of June and the 23rd of June. Um, a Catholic converter was taken from a car. Um, this is a part of an exhaust which is actually worth a substantial amount of money. It was taken from a car and the Guardian Charleville are looking for assistance from the public to please contact them on, on 063 21770. That's 0863 
21770. Now there was a, at one stage there was a spate of those catalytic converters being uh, stolen. Uh, we haven't, I don't think we've reported it in one here on the Garda file in, in quite some time. Uh, you'd just be fearful that it might start uh, again. I suppose it's be careful where you park your car. That's correct Patricia, yeah. just be careful you park your car. Um, it wouldn't be a bad idea if you have it in your driveway uh, that you might have a camera facing onto your car just as, as a bit of a deterrent. But these converters are worth money so yeah just for the public to be yeah. vigilant and, and I think to the thief they don't get a lot out of it but it's it's the cost to the person replacing it in their car correct is where it gets really really expensive okay. that's correct Patricia incidents of fraud uh, Kiron. I, th- I don't think we have a day here in the programme where we don't get some listeners saying I'm after getting another dodgy text or another uh, dodgy call so you want to give just some general advice around the incidents of fraud because it, it's it's hard to believe but people still do get caught out by these fraudsters that's correct, Patricia. A lot of people are still getting caught out and it's causing a lot of concern and stress to the public. Um, from day to day, we're, we're getting a lot of phone calls and people coming to the station who are very concerned. And I just feel it, it's important to reiterate it over and over. Um, you know, um, Just the first thing I just want to go through is uh, what to do if you get a strange text or email. Okay. It's just to be careful to text or emails that when they ask for details or ask you to, cl- to click a link. So it's very important if, to check the URL address on the site. So, for example, links from the government will always have gov.ie or from the guardie will have garda.ie. Um, it's important to take a screenshot of any suspicious email or text message so that you have you can have a record of it. And to contact your local guard station if you believe you're a victim of cybercrime. Um, a lot of public feel at times that they can't contact the guardie because they're embarrassed. Mm. But I, I would always tell them to contact the Gardaí and we can reassure them and go through exactly what's after happening. And it's very important for them to change the passwords online to secure their, their password. And it's no problem. You know, it, it's important to change the password from time to time. And yeah, and, and, and I know one piece of advice that I've often heard being given out when it comes to passwords, don't have one pass, password for everything. Some people think, oh, I'll never remember them, so I'll just have one that will, you know, run across everything that I have. And, and the experts say that is the really wrong thing to do because a lot of people stupidly use their date of birth. Correct. Yeah. I was just going to say that to Patricia. Date of birth would be probably the number one um, password. So if people just... They can just vary the password from time to time. It's very important to change it and to keep a record yourself so you don't forget it. Okay, and then the the don'ts? The don'ts is do not click on any suspicious links in emails or text messages and do not respond to suspicious messages that direct you to send money or change your bank details. Um, this this happens quite a lot, Patricia. People think it's actually their bank that's contacting yeah. them, and it's not at times. And sometimes that text can come in a link where where genuine messages have come from the bank. I mean, that's these correct. criminals are getting very clever at what they do. They're getting very clever. That's correct, Patricia. And and it's important not to share content from trusted source, sources on social media. This this can create fear among people. So, you know, I suppose we're all in it together and we're all trying to help each other and yeah. I suppose educate each other. OK, what about then the the dodgy phone calls? I seem to be getting a run on them at, at the moment. I mean, yeah. what's yeah. your advice there? Uh, my advice there, Patricia, is to check the number on the, uh, on the government department or agency website if they say they are from one of these. Call them back to, if you think the call may be genuine. Um, I think it's important to see if the numbers of the people you know and contact your local guard station if you believe you're a victim of cyber crime. Um, I do know a lot of numbers are cloned now, so you might think it is the actual mm. number they are ringing from. So 
Um, it's no, look, I think landlines are, you know, you should try to ring a landline instead of, if a mobile number's coming up, just be vigilant. Yeah, I, what, what I've taken to doing, because I just seem to be getting a run on them, I, I any number that comes up that I don't know that isn't in my contact list, I don't answer. Now, yesterday I had a call from somebody who was looking to speak with me, but they left a message. So there I was able to, to call them back. Yep. Yeah, I think that's the best way to do it. I think that's the best way, yeah, yeah. just to check your voicemails and that if they've left a voicemail and you know who it is and you're happy. Yeah, yeah, whereas uh, the fraudsters won't be leaving voicemails. No. And then the, 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 the do nots the when do you not, get one of these calls. Do not talk to the caller if you're suspicious of them. Just hang up. Do not give any personal details. Do not give your bank account details or card information. And do not call the same number back after hanging up. And do not call back a number you do not recognise. A genuine caller, as you said there, Patricia, will uh, call you back. And leave or, or leave, yeah, or leave a, a voicemail. And and I think that's a good piece of advice about, you know, don't engage in conversation. Because these guys and gals are highly sophisticated and highly trained. And they can sound really, really convincing. Correct, Patricia, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's actually frightening to answer to how how they can be so convincing. But if you're not sure... It's no. It's okay to hang up. It's okay to check the, the websites online to get the landline numbers and ring them to make sure that is correct. Okay. Then on how to protect your bank details. This, this is uh, an important one. Yes. Uh, to check your bank account activity regularly, uh, report any suspicious or unfamiliar transactions on your bank account to your bank and keep your, your online bank details safe and secure. Um, they're they are definitely the do's and the don'ts would be do not share your online bank details or passwords with anyone and do not give any financial information unless you trust the person or company you're giving it to. Okay. So yeah, because I, sometimes you do have to give financial information if you're setting up a direct debit or you're trying to pay, pay a bill. But just make sure you know who you are speaking with. That's it, yeah. Um, I just want to give more information on this. Uh, what if you do if someone has your own personal information and um, do not engage with them, do not give them any personal information and do not click on links and emails or text messages. Um, they're very frequent now, the emails and, and text messages. And the simple thing is to just ignore them and hang up. Um, if you're unsure, if the contact is genuine, just hang up. Find the contact details yourself or of the organisation that claim to be calling you and contact them directly. And, you know, it's important to keep a copy, just a screenshot of the email or text messages so when you communicate with the guardie afterwards that you have the information for us. Yeah, but as you said earlier, you know, don't and I know people get embarrassed when they get caught out don't be embarrassed. You do need to report because it's the only way we can try and get to the bottom of stopping all of these uh, frauds and criminal activity that, that is going on. So please do contact uh, your local guard the station. Absolutely. Now we're in the middle of uh, July and it's holiday season. All the, the children are out of school and a lot of people are preparing to go away on uh, holidays. You want to chat to us, Kieran, a little bit of home security for people going away on the summer holidays. Uh, yeah, just just a few points for people going away um, just for home security. Um, whether at home or going out, um, it's important to turn on some lights using timer switchers. Um, look, this goes without saying, but to lock all doors and windows, um, almost one in four summertime burglaries involve entry through unsecured access points. Um, use a house alarm. Store keys away safely away from windows and letterboxes. And record details of valuables and don't keep large cash amounts at your house. Um, if your home's going to be vacant for a good while during the summer, ask a trusted neighbour or family member to conduct uh, frequent checks of your property at different times of day to note any signs of trespassing or interference. Um, ensure the house alarm is set. Check all doors and windows are secure. Um, 
do you know, ensure that the building doesn't look neglected. Keep the grass cut before you go, things like that, you know. Um, ask a neighbour to collect the post if you're going to be away for longer periods. And, you know, inform some, you know, it's okay, it's okay to inform the local guard station if you're going away for longer periods of time to let us know. Yeah, and, and, and that one on the, the house alarm is important. You know, the number of people who have invested in a house alarm and then don't turn it on. I mean, it's it's there. It should be switched on. It should be switched every on every time yeah. you go out of the house. So so do and just as you say, keep it as as lived in as as possible. You know, if you've got a neighbour who might put your bin out on bin day, for example, right. there are small things like that that that, that you can do. And then, seeing as we've been talking about fraud that can happen on uh, line, the big one with holidays, uh, Kieran, is sharing to the world. Oh, look at me! I'm away. My house is free. Yeah. Um, your advice on social media? Yeah. Well, look. Don't post status updates about your holiday when you're still away. Um, and don't post pictures while you're away. Respect other people's privacy and don't tag others while they're with you on holidays. Avoid posting up upcoming travel plans and consider turning off your location sharing settings of your phone, phone's cameras app. Um, there are just a few, uh, you know, you just don't want to tell everyone that you're away on holidays. And sometimes people are on social media and... If a, if a post is liked, it might be shared with different groups of people yeah. that mightn't be associated with you. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you don't think of that. And it, look, you want to take the pictures, you want to show everyone that you, you're having a, a nice time, but you can wait until you come back and then you can share them all when you're back. Correct. Yeah. All right, listen, uh, Kieran. Thank you for that. Have a good week, and thanks thank for joining you. us. Uh, good you. morning to you. That is uh, Garda Kieran Cochlin, who is based out of Skibbereen Garda Station. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. It is uh, Thursday. That means Jane Pickett, our resident vet, uh, will join us later on on the program. So if you have a question for Jane, you can get it in. Bernie's taking calls, or you can text her WhatsApp in questions as well to oh eight six two one zero three one zero. Three. And I've just seen a couple of texts in from uh, people in the Canturk area. We were talking about the South Stock services for the Fomoy Mitchestown area, even though we broadened it out with uh, Sean Sherlock, because if there is any. Uh, if there's if there's less doctors working at a particular cell and they have to go to another cell, it affects all patients then because the the actual cell doc that is open ends up getting much much busier if they've got to take patients from a different area. But a couple of people are on who are worried now about the Canturk South Dock service. Now we last spoke with Michael Moynihan. I'll get Bernie to uh, give Michael Moynihan a buzz uh, just to see what's uh, going on. Uh, we've got some people saying like if somebody for example says that the Canturk Centre is closed since yesterday. How many G GPs and drivers will now be on this evening and at the weekend to cover all of Mallow and Kenturk areas. Also for Moy, the red eye services that you spoke about uh, earlier for overnight uh, calls. And somebody saying, does that mean if you're living in Kenturk, you'd have to drive to Mallow in order to see a doctor? Listen, we'll, we'll get clarification on that because we certainly had Michael Moynihan on the programme with us a couple of weeks uh, ago because there was current concerns about the Kenturk South Stock service, which is another rural South Stock service that covers a very, very wide area indeed. But I thought all of those concerns were put to bed and that everything was uh, okay. So we'll get on to Michael to see if we can get an update on that. And and I've also spotted in the middle of the text when we were talking about the football uh, and we are at almost close to half time. They're just going into the extra time in coming into the first half and it's still nil all for those of you that are not anywhere near a TV and you're trying to see how the girls are doing. Somebody says, when I got picked up about, I've called them girls again. 
Sorry about that to that, that person who says I should be calling them women. The women, they're playing well. Somebody's made a good point about the soccer team and uh, girls. So first of all, this person says, normally I do think it's a bit demeaning to call women girls. I, I don't. Anyway, but to be honest, we call the men boys. For example, when we do the Kamochi boys in green and that hashtag goes up, C-O-B-I-G, Kamochi boys in green. And of course, the latest hashtag for the girls on the Irish soccer team is come out the girls in green. It's the, the hashtag CO Cogig, C-O-G-I-G. And actually I saw in Australia yesterday a group of Irish, Irish people who live in Australia along with, I'm assuming they got some of the fans who have travelled. They went down to uh, Coogee Beach, which is a, a famous beach where all the Irish have a tendency to go uh, near Sydney and it's actually called County Coogee. And they actually all got together and they got a drone shot of all of the people standing together and they, they spelt out the hashtag Come on, ye girls in green. It was hashtag C-O-G-I-G and it looked absolutely fantastic. And I heard uh, somebody yesterday evening speaking who was involved in the organising it and they said the atmosphere and the fun and the excitement of getting it together was uh, great. So as we are approaching uh, in the dying minutes of the first half, it is still nil, nil. Uh, Ireland v Australia keep it going girls now we're into with the first half is over in the Ireland versus Australia and it has ended nil all at half time and just seeing that the first yellow card of the game has gone to our own Denise O'Sullivan and it's been described as a very physical first half but certainly the girls are holding their own. Now we just made contact with Deputy Michael Moynihan about the concerns that people have in the Canturk area about the South Stock uh, whether the, the, the South Stock in Canturk is closed. Um, he's got real concerns now. He's looking into it for us. Uh, he's not available to join us uh, today but he certainly will join us tomorrow so we'll hopefully have an update on that for people in the Canturk area who certainly seem to be a bit concerned to see the centre closed at the moment. Let's see what's going on on there because uh, Michael Moynihan certainly had a commitment that there was no plans to close the South Stock service in Canturk so we'll talk about that more tomorrow. Okay I need to take a break we have news at 12 midday on the way it is Thursday so Jane Pickett will be along to answer all of your pet questions. Do you have one? You can call Bernie 0818 103 103. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103-103. And the second half of the Ireland versus Australia in the World Cup, opening match in the World Cup, is underway and it is still nil all. Come on, the girls in green. And talking about the girls in green, Stephen in County Kerry says, Trisha, to be honest, in the mental age, day and age that we live, it's a wonder we're even allowed to call the footballers girls or even women, for that matter. Says <laughs> Stephen, you've got to be so... The w- it's all gone so woke at the moment. You've got to be so, so uh, careful, don't you? Actually, I, was, I had a chat with them. Um, I was talking with Mark. I might actually get him to, to talk about it because he was quite enraged about it yesterday. Mark Malone, who does our movie review. Uh, we were just talking about how, you know, everyone, uh, industry are so afraid of offending everyone, particularly the movie uh, industry. And it's to do with Disney. They're remaking Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And there was uh, complaints in about using um, people of small stature to play the Seven Dwarfs with Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. So they've got bowed to it and they've got one person of small stature and the other six 
are made up of people of uh, normal sized people from all different uh, walks of life, not all different walks of life, all different ethnic backgrounds. And it just doesn't make any sense. I don't even know how they're going to call it Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or how they're going to get around that. But it's, yeah, it's the way we are living at, at the moment. Uh, Breeze was listening to us talk about the the increase in VAT that is going to go up. Well, it's definitely going to go up on the 31st of August because the doll would have to be called back because they're in recess until somewhere in the middle of uh, September and the, the law is there that it got extended from February until the 31st of August and that's it. It reverts back for the hospitality sector from 9%, it'll go back up to 13.5% because the hospitality sector, while people say, oh, hotels are price gouging, only right that they should pay extra. But mark my words, it'll be passed on to the consumers. It was the Restaurant Association. They've teamed up. Hair, I've, I can never understand why hairdressers are in under hospitality. I've always sort of queried that one. But it's going to mean if you go to get your hair done, highlights in your hair uh, whatever you get done at the hairdressers that's also going to go up from the 1st of September and because businesses are particularly the smaller businesses on very tight margins they're struggling already they're not going to be able to afford to absorb the additional 4.5% and the fear is then it gets passed on to the customer and then if they go too high and pass it on to the customer they lose business and ultimately they go out of business and that's what Adrian Cummins was talking about but Breed said to be honest Patricia I didn't see any reduction in the VAT rate in Cork uh, when I went to cafes and restaurants and I've checked a lot of venues at the time as always in Ireland when things go up it's always instantaneous but whenever there is a reduction it always comes down very very slowly but I suppose with the VAT increase in fairness you wouldn't have seen it last uh, February what happened last February was it was meant to go back up to the 9%. It was in place until 28th of February 2023. And then the extension was given because of the cost of living and all of that. And the extension then was given until the 31st of August, where we're talking about it again as we're coming close to the 31st of August. But that 9% VAT rate was introduced in response to the challenges posed by uh, COVID-19 to support the hospitality sector. So it had been in place for quite some time. So it wasn't that in February, suddenly it was going from 13.5 down to a 9. It was in, in place uh, for quite some time, but it will it will go back up. And the tourism and hospitality uh, sector uh, covers um, obviously bars, hotels and uh, restaurants, but it also covers, where's the full list? I saw the list there, there a moment. The, 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 the 9% going up to 13.5% will cover the goods on tourist accommodation, cinemas, theatres, museums, historic houses, open farms, amusement parks and hairdressers, as well as certain printed matter such as brochures, leaflets, programmes and catalogues. So there's a lot of, of industries going to be affected. And I've just looked up at the TV screen to see that Australia got a penalty and they have scored. So Australia are 1-0 up on uh, Ireland, but we're only just into the first, what, six six minutes of the second half. 0818103103. Let me go to some other issues that have come in and actually some answers to some of the issues that, that came in. We had a caller earlier uh, this morning who had just discovered that if you're out sick from work and you are claiming from the Department of Social Protection, you will get €220 Euro a week to live in. And the listener was saying that's hard enough to live on while you're out sick because, you, you know, you have doctor's fees and um, prescription fees, uh, etc. But this listener 
had only discovered when you go back to work, you have to pay it back. So she said if you pay 20% tax, you end up paying back €44 Euro a week while you were out sick. And listen, we're saying it makes no, uh, makes no sense at all. What are we paying taxes for? So I, I, I was trying to work out how that all of that works, but Bernie has looked into it and it's illness benefit. Both the personal rate and the increase for a qualified adult is taxable. So any increases for child dependents, though, is not ta- taxable. So what it means is you get the illness pe- benefit that's paid directly to you without any tax deducted, but then it's taxed by reducing your tax credits and your rate band. So it's when you go back to work, you've less tax credits and that's why you feel like you're paying it back. They'll say you're not, but I mean, yeah, uh, apples and pears, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, so th- that's how it works. It's it's in a reduction of your tax credits and your rate band. I was talking about the Met Aaron. And how, and I don't know if this is the first because I don't remember reading about it before. They've given out the the complaints, some of the complaints that people have sent in to Met Aaron about wrong weather forecasts. And that was just in the first half of this year. John is in Cove and he says whenever he watches the weather forecast on RTE, particularly if it's Siobhan Ryan, the meteorologist is delivering it. He has always noticed that Siobhan will mention the greater Dublin area and she'll do that on every forecast to it. Do we take it? Do you live somewhere in the greater Dublin uh, Dublin uh, area? So he got onto RT. He didn't get onto the Met Office. He got onto the RT, and they said they'd look into it. Let us know, John, how you get on with that one. And uh, do you want her to stop talking about the greater Dublin area? I'm assuming that's what you are insinuating. And somebody else says, Meadow, me, whether men and women are meteorologists, they're like politicians. They can't get everything right. 0818103103. And then we had a listener who earlier on on the show today is wondering how the Irish government are going to explain how a Russian drone that was used to bomb parts of Ukraine. It was found to have parts of the drone. Very clearly, I saw the images online made in Ireland. Jerry was saying, this is hugely embarrassing. And does it raise questions about Ireland's neutrality, to say the very least, if there's a company in Ireland are making parts that are being used by drones that are then being used by Russia to bomb and to kill people in the uh, Ukraine. Well, here's the latest. This is from a defence and security expert by the name of uh, Declan Power. Declan said that this is not the first time that this company, and this company is uh, Tillotson. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Tillotson. It's not the first time that they've been accused of producing products for military purposes. And he cites a three-year investigation which found the company had had links to the illegal procurement of weapons that were used in Afghanistan. But it turns out that it wasn't actually a Tillotson product. The products had been faked to look like they had been made by this Irish company. When it was examined and investigated, it turned out it wasn't their product at all. Uh, So uh, that's the lens that they will go through, that the Russians will go through and other countries will go through to try to implicate other countries and try to make others other countries uh, involved. So glad to uh, clarify that. 0818 103 103. You know the way... COVID and the pandemic and funny enough I, mentioned, I just mentioned it there when we were talking about the restaurants and the hospitality industry when it comes to their VAT you know the way during COVID we all know of somebody who either didn't get COVID 
Irish, they didn't, they did get it. They showed little or no uh, symptoms. And I think all of us know they might have a family member or a friend who never actually picked up COVID at all. Well, it seems these people who didn't get uh, COVID or who else didn't have any symptoms, they're now being known as COVID super dodgers. And research has gone on and scientists at the University of California have discovered that people carrying certain immune system gene mutations were up to eight times less likely to report any symptoms, even if they did pick up COVID-19. It suggests now that their bodies were better able to recognise COVID-19 as an invader and then flush it out of their system before it could cause any complications and before it could bring on any of the symptoms. Gene mutations, they're the ones that help immune cells recognise COVID-19. And even though they had never encountered this COVID-19 before, thanks to its resemblance to the seasonal cold virus. He reckons that's how the gene mutation was able to pick it up. Now, the research has just been published in the journal Nature, and this is the first evidence that there is a genetic basis for why some people never become sick from COVID-19 and they now reckon it could open the door for new ways of preventing the infection going forward. The mutation is thought to be carried in about 10% of the population which roughly corresponds to the number of people who never reported a COVID infection, said they never ever got it. It's possible they did get it but they just had one of these gene mutations which means they didn't display any symptoms. Although it doesn't prevent the virus from affecting the cells what it does is it stops the symptoms in its tracks uh, so people wouldn't have even realised that they were uh, infected and scientists hope the finding now could lead to the creation of new drugs or new vaccines that would induce that same immune effect in everybody else and it would basically um, get rid completely of uh, COVID-19 and I know there's lots of studies going on around the world I think this University of California seemed to be the first out with their studies because I certainly saw studies here in this country are, are, that, was, that were going on where they were looking for people, certainly last year they were looking for people who had never been infected by uh, COVID, uh, who had never tested positive for COVID. They were looking for those people to come forward because they wanted to run tests to see could they explain why so there's the first of those uh, studies out 0818 103 103 I can already see Bernie taking calls in for Jane Pickett our resident vet so if you have a pet question you can also text them in to me at um, 0862 103 103 The C103 Cork Diary With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing community and business supports all all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Nazareth House in uh, Mallow. They're holding their weekly lotto draw. It is on today, Thursday, three o'clock in the afternoon, and the jackpot is ten thousand uh, euro. Kildallery Community Development. They've got their weekly lotto draw. That is also this afternoon, four o'clock. Their jackpot is nine thousand five hundred uh, euro. And a reminder that the Irish Blood Transfusion Service Board cancelled their blood donor clinic that was due to be held in the Cork Marts today in Formoy, but instead they have an alternative clinic and that will be held in Riverstick Community Centre between 4 and uh, 8. If you're in that area, please consider giving uh, blood. Shangari Art Exhibition that opens at my place, Mill Road in Middleton, tomorrow. 
half past seven tomorrow evening and it will continue until the following Saturday week, 29th of July. Special sub-exhibition with affordable art with proceeds going to the Focus Ireland appeal. And Dunamore Carnival, that runs from tomorrow Friday through to next Sunday. Lots of entertainment uh, throughout the weekend including car treasure hunt sports basketball and the family fun day will be held on sunday with something for all the family email patricia now with your story or comment cork today at c103.ie Cork today on C103. And anybody in the Mallow area, let us know. Jar was on to us. She's living near the library in Mallow, so the lower end of the main street, and she's without water, and she's wondering, is there a problem? Now, we did get on to Irish Water, and they tell us there's a burst water main, but that's at the iron mines in Mallow, so that surely shouldn't affect Jar. Anybody else in this kind of the lower end of the main street in Mallow, can you check your taps, please? Do you have water or not? Or is it a problem particular just to uh, Jar's house? And uh, John was on... This is to do with prices in the hospitality sector and in particular prices if you're going for a meal to a restaurant. Uh, John says there's one particular premises that he uses for family events. And I don't want to give any more detail, John, because I don't want to identify it because it's it's unfair on the actual premises. But he said last year, four of them went out for a full four course meal. And the total cost was €74. Euro. Now, I'm assuming there wasn't a bottle of wine or a round of drinks in that. But anyway, €74. Euro. Two weeks ago, same four people went, had a similar meal, and it was gone up to €104. Uh, Euro. And I will instantly say that's to do, John, with the cost of doing business. Look how much electricity has uh, increased from last year to now. Cost of all the items that have been purchased that went into making your meal has uh, gone up. Staff costs have gone up. Insurances has gone up. I really, I really do feel for businesses. I think businesses now. That's not to take away that some are price gouging, but I think very few are. I mean, the margins that a lot of restaurants are making. I was looking into this uh, yesterday. Traditionally, they they used to make between five and six percent would be the, the the markup, and that's how much they'd be making. You know, by the time everything is paid, that's running at about one percent now for some businesses. They barely are scraping by and that's why and it would be the same in a lot of the smaller hairdressers as well uh, they are just about breaking even and anything that's going to cause their pro- their costs to go up is going to have a huge huge uh, effect 0818103103 saw so a study that's out from the Economic and Social Research Institute and this is to do and it's a comparison with uh, Europe and this is to do with home ownership and being able to afford homes in this country And it seems now there's clear evidence that the younger generation and the higher earners, uh, which are two very different groups of people, they are both the groups that are worse off uh, than anywhere in the rest of Europe when it comes to housing costs. Middle and high income earners in Ireland, they are facing more extreme rent pressures, according to this report from the ESRI. And the report also shows that the under 40s, they are being completely squeezed out of home uh, ownership. As a result, we've got young people here moving back in with their parents and they're moving back in with their parents at a faster rate than anywhere else in Europe. This ESRI research is painting a mixed picture for renters and for mortgage holders in Ireland and they have compared their results to 14 other European countries. Now, since 
the uh, the, uh, the data that they're using is from 2019. So obviously 2019, the following year, we had the start of the COVID lockdowns and, and that led to rising interest rates. That led to shortages of building supply, shortage of construction workers, costs all went up. And then, of course, on top of that, we had the war in uh, Ukraine. So that has further deepened the housing crisis. Homelessness now, we know, has reached a, a new record with the number of people using emergency accommodation, people who are living in hotels and B&Bs for the first time ever in May of this year. That figure went to over 12,000 people in Ireland. So this report from the ESRI found that overall Irish household renters and mortgage holders spend less of their income on housing than their European counterparts. But Irish renters seem to fare worse than the more they earn. And that's because there are extensive rental supports available and they'll shield the lower earners. But the people who are earning more, that's that famous squeezed middle, isn't it? They're entitled to nothing. They are the ones who are really being caught when it comes to either renting a property or trying to save to buy their own uh, house. And remember, at the moment, more than half of all Irish renters are on some form of state housing support. But therefore, it means half of all renters are not getting any kind of state supports and they have to go out and or get out, go out, get up early in the morning as the Everadker once said, and earn the money in order to keep the roof over their head. Low earners generally, though, spend more of their income on rent than higher earners, but the proportions in Ireland are smaller when you compare them to the rest of Europe. Now, if you spend over 30% of your income on housing, that is generally considered to be unaffordable. And around a quarter of people in the lower income in Ireland are above that 30% threshold when you compare it to the rest of Europe where about a third pay over 30% and then that trend is reversed for those earning more. The report found 16% of Irish households earn between 34,000 and 49,000 a year and they are the ones that spend 30% of their income on rent and that's almost twice the average rate in other countries that took part in the study. 14% of householders then, they earn between 49,000 and 70,000 and they were the ones above the 30% affordability uh, issue at almost five times the rate in the rest of Europe and that is purely down to cost of housing and cost of rent. More than half of private sector renters that don't receive support fall into that income bracket because they're outside of the they earn between 49,000 and 70,000 they're not entitled to get any kind of like the HAP payments or any kind of state benefits uh, and the the maximum income limit for social housing are to qualify for HAP. That's 40,000 if you're in Dublin and it's 35,000 elsewhere, Uh, which means if you're earning over that, you're not going to get it. And that isn't a lot of money uh, to be earning when you think factor everything else has gone up and the cost of everything else. Now, when it comes to home ownership, the ESRI also looked at that and there is, I don't think anyone would be surprised to hear this, there's a generation gap. Less than half of, of those under 40 own their house 
compared with those over 40. Uh, only Greece, Denmark, Austria and Germany and Switzerland saw lower rates. And most of those countries, of course, they have long established traditions of renting. They also have very strict rent controls and they are countries that, you know, uh, families have rented for years and, you know, they they never aspire to own their own houses. They have a very different housing model to what we have here. But then when you look at the over 65s in Ireland, they have the highest rate of home ownership in Europe. Over 65s also make up the bulk of Ireland's lowest income earners. And that obviously is skewing the data then. And that's because a lot of many of the over 65s, while they own their own house, they are living on state benefits. So they would be uh, they would be deemed then to be low income uh, earners. Half of uh, under half of the Irish population either own their house outright or they're in free accommodation. It comes in at 43.5 percent, which means over 55 percent do not own their own house. The ERSRI say high house prices tighter central bank lending standards, successive tenant purchase schemes, that's all allowed low-income tenants to buy local authority housing at a discount, and that's been going on for decades. But it meant fewer low-income people needed to or could afford to buy a house. Essentially, lower-income households in Ireland fare better than elsewhere, and that's due to the... uh, supports that are given out by the government but those in the middle to high parts of the income distribution fare the worst and they're mainly the ones that have ended up in private rented accommodation in in receipt of no supports. The state of the Irish housing market means that one in four young adults, now these are aged between 25 and 34, one in four of them are were still living with their parents in 2019. Now remember that was before COVID. During COVID many more people moved back in with their uh, pa- with their parents and the rate in Ireland rose 23% of young adults moving back in with their parents. It went 23% between 2015 and 2019 and that was the biggest hike in Europe and if you look at those years that was the years when house prices started to really get higher and higher. Rents started to go up and people simply couldn't afford it. Now I know a lot of young adults in that 25 to 34 uh, age group move back home in order to try to save on rent and they do that to try to get a bit of a deposit together in the hope that one day they will be able to own their own homes. But yeah, but a huge, uh, once again, there's just so much evidence out there, isn't there, isn't there, about the middle and so-called high-income earners. And, you know, people earning 70,000, it might sound a lot to people who are living on social welfare, but if you're earning 70,000 and you're in a household with two adults, you might have children, you have all the bills uh, to pay and you're paying very high rent are, and you're paying very high mortgage, uh, they are the ones who are really squeezed out of everything. 0818 103 103. We are looking for your pet questions, please, for uh, Jane. You can text 0818, or no, you can call Barney at 0818 103 103, or you can text or WhatsApp me to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. And thank you to Jer for getting back onto us. She lives on the main street in Mallow and she was onto us because she was without water and thought there was a, a water outage. And we got onto Ishka Aaron, uh, who, uh, where we found out there was a, a burst water main in, in the Iron Mines area of Mallow, but certainly nothing on the main street. She's just been back on to text to say, It's okay, I was turned off in the street by mistake. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know who switched off um, for Alger's uh, water because you know you're back up and running. Uh, 0818 103 103. If you have a question for Jane Pickett, our resident vet, please uh, call us. Uh, Jane joins us now from the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital, part of the Mill Street Veterinary Group. Good afternoon to you, Jane. Good afternoon, Patricia. And, and I have an interesting one to start with today, and it's kind of a sad, but but there's an interesting twist to it. In that, I was contacted during the week by a family who have a much loved dog that needs to be put down, and and it's coming to that stage. You know, they've battled hard, and you know, it's the kindest thing to do. Now, the question that they want me to ask you is: Do you suggest bringing the dog to the vet to be put down, or is it better for the vet to come? to their house to do it. And if the option that you suggest is to go to the vet's practice, should a member of the family remain with the dog, even though that is going to be tremendously upsetting for the person that does? And what advice do you give around that ending of life when you've got to do that? And I know as a vet, it's probably one of the toughest things you have to do when it's a much-loved pet. Absolutely, but I suppose a lot of the time, and it sounds like it is in this situation, you know, it is, it, it is the, the product of a lot of thought and a lot of careful careful decision-making to get to that point. And in many cases, for, for older pets or those with ongoing health issues that are impacting on their quality of life, you know, it's, it's a great privilege to be able to give them that ease to ease their suffering. Um, so my heart goes out to these guys. It, you know, it, it's a really tough time, and to know you're facing into that is really, really hard. Um, but I know you're trying to do the best for your pet. With with the questions you've asked, so I suppose the first one is home visit versus coming into the clinic. That really depends a lot on two things, um, your own pet and I suppose how relaxed or stressed they get in the veterinary environment and your vet, so whether they have the capability to do home visits because some do and, and some don't. So it's worth checking before you kind of come to a decision in your own mind with your vet as to whether do they do they offer or do they have the ability to do home visits for you. Um, so check that out with them first. If they do, then I suppose there's, there's pros and cons to both. I suppose the pro of being at home is it's in their home environment and I suppose they don't have the stress of, of travel, but some dogs don't mind travelling at all, so that may not be an issue for your pet. Um, I suppose the, the drawback of it being at home is that Things are a little bit more challenging and a little bit, I suppose, less controlled outside of the veterinary clinic environment. Um, so, you know, most of the time, um, helping a pet on their way to, to, to put to sleep is, is a very smooth process. But very occasionally, let's say particularly in older pets where their blood veins may not be as, as brightly as they once were, sometimes things like popping in a little IV catheter can be a little bit more challenging and that's maybe easier in an in-clinic environment. So I would say that, you know, have a chat with your vet about it because they will know your pet and they'll be able to guide you as to whether they think a home visit for your pet in your circumstances, knowing how they are in the clinic, would be a feasible thing. If they're very relaxed and, you know, if things are likely to go smoothly, they may say, yeah, look, we can do a home visit, no problem. But if they have concerns, let's say we'd know our patients really well, as most vets do, we'd be able to tell the ones that are likely to be better um, I suppose passing over the Rainbow Bridge in a, in a clinic environment but in a clinic environment a lot of clinics will book um, and put to sleep at the end of a consulting block generally so that there's not a lot of people around and you have a bit more time and there's less pressure so have a chat with them about that as well if, they, if you need to decide to go with any clinic put to sleep um, but I'd really say with this one 
no, no decision is right or wrong here. Yeah, but the, 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 the one that um, the lady who was talking to me that they're all debating about because it's a, it's a, it's a family a dog, even though they're all mm-hmm. they're all adults and it's it's on, it's on mm-hmm. behalf of the father that the decision mm-hmm. is had to be made. Um, should somebody stay with the dog with the dog at that moment? Yeah. So my own personal take on it is that it is up to each person, each owner to make their own decision on whether they need to be with their pet at that moment. I think there's a lot of things out there in the media and I know there's been some, some things doing the rounds on the internet and social media about this recently. Um, some people do have very polarised opinions. Some people feel absolutely you definitely need to be with your pet at that moment and others, are, others feel less so. What I would say is you really have to balance up for yourself. It would be lovely to be able to be there for your pet in that moment but you have to balance that with the distress you think you're likely to feel Mm. at that point and whether that's something you feel comfortable with and it can be really really stressful I know a lot of people and I suppose I've lost pets recently myself a lot of people say oh you know it's only a dog or it's only a cat it's not you know we see these little guys every single day of our lives we're more bonded to them in, in many cases than a lot of humans so I suppose managing grief afterwards and processing that grief is a really big thing so you know it is just just a pet, as people say, but it's not. It's a family member. It's so absolutely. If you need to reach out for, for grief help, yeah. then that, that's really, really important. What I would say is, you know, make the right decision for you and your pet. And I suppose you have to manage your own stress and distress at that moment. What I will say is that we, uh, for the pets that I would put to sleep, I would say it's about half and half. Yeah. Half would stay and half would go. Yeah. And for those pets, I suppose what I want to reassure you is for those pets, who don't have their owners with them as they pass, the veterinary team generally step in and try and be a bit of a pseudo-family for that moment. So we'll be all around them, usually with snacks, giving them a really good cuddle, telling them that they're best boy and girl. So they're in safe hands either way. Is it it the toughest part of your job? You know, in, in ways it is. But in other ways, it's one of the great privileges of being a vet in being able to end the suffering for pets that are really struggling with was ongoing health issues where they may be otherwise very unhappy um, or very ill so that we can we can help them on, on their way across the Rainbow Bridge but yeah. you know it is it doesn't get any easier well done Thanks. well done well, well answered somebody said um, a vet would always come to my uh, house I would never have it any other way says a listener who's obviously over the years had a, had a few mm-hmm. uh, pets that have had to be put down okay mm-hmm. let's get let's get straight into other questions that have come uh, in Brian is in West Cork has a seven year old uh, Yorkie female neutered has developed loose stools with a little bit of blood in it the last three to four days also Brian has noticed a very poor appetite Okay so for this little pet, it's more than just a one-off loose poo and there is a little bit of blood. Now, blood can be a number of things. Um, so sometimes it, it can be just that the diarrhea has been I suppose, going on for a day or two. Sometimes that can make the colon, which is the, the last part of the, the GI tract, a little bit irritated. And sometimes it can be inflamed and have a little bleed. But there are causes, or I suppose more sinister causes, of of blood and diarrhea as well. It can be to do with, let's say, I suppose sometimes parasites or the little lumps and bumps, different changes or alterations. So what I would say is I think the key thing that makes me say now is the time to act is that your pet's appetite is, is down. Um, so they're just not really feeling well. 
what I would say is that it's been going on for a few days, the appetite is down, I would see your vet at this point. Now, it may be a very simple thing. It might just be a case that they might need some symptomatic management just to settle them down. The most common cause of the tummy upset that we see really um, are are the stress. Sometimes if something different has happened in the home or they've had a new pet introduced to the house, they've been somewhere different. And the other one is what we fondly call dietary indiscretion. So eating things they're not meant to um, is one of the biggies. So just have a little think before you go into the vet to say, well, what's changed over the last week? What's changed in the diet? What's changed in their environment? And it might be nothing. It might just be a tummy bug they've managed to pick up. But sometimes it can be really helpful if there's a trigger for the vet to be able to know that so they can help with, with managing it ongoing. But, you know, I think now is the time to act well done for noticing and get, get that appointment. With your yeah, and especially when it's going on for, for three, four days. Kay is in Churchtown, wants to know, is there any long-term injection for a cat with arthritis? Now, her cat is only four, but recently diagnosed by the vet as having arthritis. Is that unusual on a four-year-old cat? It's a little bit unusual, but yeah. not unheard of. Um, I, I think certainly every every pet is a little bit different, and some some pets are just how their bodies are made. Their conformation might be a little bit more prone to to joint issues, um, and certainly some breeds breeds can be as well. So look, it's unusual, but not unheard of. Um, so trust your vet in that specific situation. There are some longer term injections you can give for cats, actually, um, for pain management. Some of them are monthly. I know I have some patients on, on, on a medication that you can inject monthly as kind of a pain relief that manages the, the I suppose what it does is it manages the way the nerves pick up the pain signal. Um, so it acts on it from that side. Um, there's a number of them available. Well, what I would say is that if, if it is a case that you feel your pet is uncomfortable, and I suppose in cats, the signs are of discomfort with moving are a lot more subtle than with dogs. So with cats, it can be, let's say, a reluctance to jump or where they would have once upon a time whizzed up and down the stairs and now they're taking one step at a time. Um, they will be the main things, really. It's, it's a lot more subtle than a, a limping dog. Cats are better at hiding it. So if you feel your pet is uncomfortable, pain management is really important, but also being cognizant of the fact that the pet is really young. If we're going to start managing pain now, which if it's necessary, absolutely young age should not be a barrier to going on medication for pain management. Um, but it's just to do it in a safe way, so to protect them longer term, so that they can keep motoring around for as long as possible. But do discuss with your with your vet that there there is a monthly injection that is available for pain in cats. Now, I don't know the specifics of the situation with your pet. It may be appropriate, but have a chat with your vet, and they'll let you know if that's something that might be a feasible option for your oh, situation. Okay. And Susan just got a new arrival of a little kitten into the household this week. Uh, the kitten is up all night and sleeping all day, and then crying at night all the time. How long will it take the kitten to settle? Oh, goodness. Well, congratulations on the new arrival. But, yeah, yes, you know, it's, it's always a little bit of an upheaval for these little guys. They're in a totally new environment. And when they're young, they're also away from their litter mates. I think the thing is it will take them a little while to settle. I would say, you know, you're probably going to be talking three, four weeks before that kitten really properly settles in. But the things I'd say that you could do overnight with a young little kitten, put a little hot water bottle. Now, make sure it's really well sealed, not puncturable and covered so that it's not hot to the touch. It's just kind of gently warm. Put that in with them so that they can lie against that. That'd be like snuggling up to their buddies when they were in their litter. And another old, old-fashioned but a goodie trick is an old ticking clock, which kind of stimulates stimulates the the heartbeat sound that they would have when they were with their mum. These things can help a little bit. A little bit of ambient noise as well, classical music in the background overnight, just very, very low, can help just to, to soothe them so they don't feel like they're totally alone. Can take a little while, but. Generally, their sheep sleep schedules will, will adjust to what the family life is. 
Um, but stick in there. I'm sure you'll have a, a great little buddy for, and for and kittens many are years. One, a little kitten is, is wonderful. Uh, hi, um, hi, Patricia. Question, please, for Jane. Two dogs, a 17-year-old and a three-year-old. The older dog is coming, as you've been talking about uh, earlier, to end of life. Uh, would Jane suggest, do I need to get another dog or will my younger dog get used to being on his own? Uh, he'll be at home on his own during a portion of the day. He's like he's obviously mm. from when he's come to the house, this older dog was always there with him. Will he get used to life on his own? They they do tend to get used to life on their own. Now, I think it will really depend. If, let's say, you feel that the end of life care, sadly, for your, your older pet is quite imminent, then I would say introducing a new dog into the household right now is probably not the best idea. It might be helpful for the younger dog, but for the older dog, probably if they're, if they're in their twilight years, they might just need some peace and quiet and upsetting the dynamic there might not be the, the best thing for them. But if you feel that their end of life care may be a little way off, let's say six months a year, you could consider introducing a new pet into the household, but that would have to be just done quite sensibly for the older pet as well, giving them plenty of time alone so that they didn't feel like their, their world had been kind of turned upside down a little bit. Um, but what I will say is that if you don't choose to get a pet before your, your older pet passes away, then that's fine too. They do tend to adapt to being on their own. Sometimes what I suggest is, you know, once they have a period of time on their own after the other pet passes, they, you know, they will grieve in their own way. They will probably become a bit more clingy. Their, their buddy is less them, so you kind of need to step into that role. So you'll probably be spending a lot of time with them. Um, but eventually, and I suppose I wouldn't do this immediately after losing a pet, Leave several months past. You'll know when the time is right for you to add a new pet to your household. Yeah. Um, don't don't rush into it. Um, okay. Okay. And just very finally, this is a heartbreaking text in from a listener saying, Patricia, my own personal experience, my beautiful dog was wagging his tail while I was calling his name when he passed away and we opted to do it in the veterinary uh, surgery. Um, it was heartbreaking uh, indeed, but my dog was happy because I was with him. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. important as well. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. Okay, listen, um, Jane, thank you for that. Have a lovely week. And uh, we'll, chat, too, we'll chat again next week. That is uh, Jane Pickett of the Islandwood Veterinary Hospital in uh, Newmarket, part of the uh, Mill Street Veterinary Group. Now, don't forget tomorrow, our hours to uh, protect. We'll be looking at the ocean, how the ocean is threatened by overfishing, pollution and the destruction of coastal and deep sea uh, habitats. Uh, we'll also look at how fish stocks uh, can rebuild, critical nature habitats can be protected and how we can reduce pollution levels. We so have to look after our seas. That's all part of our Hours to Protect feature, which we run on Fridays at about 11.45. OK, that's where I wrap it up uh, for today. It's in the dying minutes of the match in Australia and it's still 1-0 uh, to Australia. The girls, by all accounts, are playing really well. OK, that's where I leave you. Thanks to uh, Bernie, who produced. Nick Richards is with you. Talk to you tomorrow at 10. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.